Like you can look at it, both things can be true. Does this person deserve to lose their life because of what they've done? Probably yes. Does that mean that we should then do it? No. <laughs> I'm Sean McDonald, you're listening to Blethered, and I'm joined by lawyer and registered midwife Jamie McGrady to discuss the complexities of the trial, conviction and the upcoming appeal of serial killer Lucy Letby. Letby was recently convicted of the murder of six newborn babies and the attempted murder of seven more in what was the longest running murder trial in British legal history. Where does the responsibility begin and end for the NHS? And more specifically, what degree of culpability enshrouds senior management within the Countess of Chester Hospital? They not only ignored repeated warnings and alarms from senior consultants within the neonatal unit, but they also threatened those very whistleblowers with severe disciplinary measures. We reflect on the evidence that led to Letby's conviction and her receipt of a full life order, meaning that she'll die behind bars. There's a discussion on the death penalty. Is an eye for an eye the appropriate measure in a case like this? Or do we have to maintain a societal status quo regardless of the crime? And a subject that fascinates me to no end, criminal defence lawyers. Do they dip their toes into the definition of evil? After all, who would defend a person that harmed babies for self-gratification? Or is their role a heavily misunderstood one? and possibly the most vital of the entire justice system. Well, we're talking about all of that and more. If you enjoy this episode, then I'd be grateful if you shared it, and if you're feeling extra generous, maybe leave a review wherever you're listening. This is Blethered, and thanks for joining us. What is your position right now? What what type of thing do you work on? Um, so right now I, I'm a senior solicitor um, in a, a full service firm, if you like, um, in, in Glasgow. And I trained there, so I've been there for over five years now. And um, the reason I wanted to train at that firm um, was because they had a clinical defence team and they also had a regulatory and criminal defence team and that's actually the team that I work in now. So at the time I was sort of applying to do law and, and doing it, I thought that I, you know, with my background, would be really into like the medical negligence stuff and um, all the fitness to practice. So that's like your general medical council, nursing and midwifery council, and defending medical professionals against, you know, fitness to practice um, pre- heat proceedings and things like that that have been brought against them for whatever reason. If something goes wrong, somebody has a severe injury to their impairment or even death, then there's going to be some sort of spotlight, isn't there? So you would then work quite closely with that type of thing. Yeah, uh uh-huh. So, I mean, it can even be something as simple as um, a nurse, midwife, doctor, dentist gets pulled by the police for um, careless driving. They have to report that. Oh, based on their profession? Yes. Why? Um, Because they have committed a crime. (laughs) So you have have to... um, 
you have to tell your regulator. Now, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought that was relevant. Hi, I would like to refer myself to the regulatory body. Okay, what's your offence? Uh, I was doing 40 and a 30. So a speeding, you, you don't necessarily have to report, but if you've actually got a conviction for like dangerous, even careless driving, um, that you, you would have to report. If you've just got a wee fixed penalty, for example, you're going through a, a light or something like that, Couple you don't them. necessarily... It would become a problem if you got loads and loads of them. Yeah. Um, they would take an issue with right, that. Right, okay. Um, but, well, yeah, so... I would have thought. So is this the whole, you've taken the Hippocratic Oath and... <laughs> well, it, it's it's really just the fit and proper person. Right, test. okay. So that that's kind of what it stems from. Um, you have to be a fit and proper person to be in these professions. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm totally splitting hairs. But I'm no, just, that's, that's quite a surprise to me. I know, and, and this is the thing, it's like, you know, there might be people out there that, that don't actually know yeah. um, what they have to report. So, what, were you working, like, you, you've said to me before, you never divulge in any sensitive information or details, mm -hmm. but you've kind of said to me you're working in, like, fatal accident inquiries yeah. and, and those types of things. Talk me kind of through, what what's the makeup of that, just for people listening to get, just so we're painting the mm -hmm. best picture of your area of expertise and, and kind of what you're working on day to day. Yeah, so one of the things that I work most frequently on um, since I've, I've joined my team um, is fatal accident inquiries and basically um, that is an inquiry that's brought in the public interest um, by the Crown. So in Scotland that would be the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service we commonly call them the PF and um, there are various types of in inquiries there are mandatory fatal accident inquiries and then there are discretionary fatal accident inquiries so for example a death in custody or um, someone dying in the course of their employment that's mandatory whereas a discretionary one that will be assessed um, within um, the Crown Office and right. Procurator Fiscal Service internally um, as to, you know, is this particular case, is this one that's in the public interest? But also the family's views are, are taken into consideration. Um, you know, do they want one or are they pressing for one to happen? Um, and it's basically, um, you know, the, the Crown will... will it's their inquiry. They they will run these, and there will be witnesses led. There's you know disclosure of evidence before you even get to that point, um, and the the whole point of a, a fatal accident inquiry in a nutshell is to see whether there are things that, that could reasonably have been done to to avoid the death or the accident, whatever the circumstances may be, and if there are any um sort of systems, system failures okay. um, that th the sheriff has to look at, make recommendations on, you know, safe systems of work, all this sort of, sort of thing. Would, would you include in that then a failure to intervene when something has been flagged up, for example? So, yeah, that is definitely something that an inquiry would be interested in looking at. So an action could be looked at as a negligent action, so to speak. Like you didn't do anything, therefore you made a conscious choice not to do that, and that could have you reprimanded as the inquiry goes on. 
So the whole point of a fatal accident inquiry isn't to apportion blame. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it won't identify if there is a failing okay. by a person or an organisation. Um, you know, these um, inquiries are not supposed to be used to um, be put forward in other court proceedings and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, that the sort of purpose of them is really to drill down into the issues and try and prevent these incidents or accidents or whatever it is that, that they're looking into from happening again. Okay, so it's... And to make recommendations and, and, and changes based on... Yeah, so not, not to apportion blame per se. If blame happens to be found, then it will be attributed to the relevant parties. But yeah, so to... Right, okay, I'm getting it. Mm -hmm. Basically to ensure that this type of thing doesn't happen again. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, so there is a there is an outcome. It's not so much like a trial of guilty and not guilty. No. Uh, well, given your experience as you know working as a midwife, would you do you still do that? I do still do. So since COVID, um, I signed back up. I had let my registration lapse, and then I was asked to come back on the emergency register, and then I just got my full registration. So I periodically will do, um we'll do some bank shifts um, to keep my hand in and you know it's the services still really busy um, so so you've got Monday to Friday you'll be wearing your suit and your heels and whatever <laughs> and as a lawyer and then Saturday Sunday you could have the crocs and the scrubs on yeah wouldn't do both days but maybe one Saturday Saturday or the Sunday right, uh -huh. okay. yeah so you're, you're perfectly placed then to to basically answer the questions that I've got and I think for anybody or a, a couple of points a wee bit of sort of housekeeping first of all if you're looking for the the entire chronology of the Lucy Letby uh, tra case and trial and subsequent conviction I suggest go and find a podcast that, that's done that because we are not going to be able to provide that and we're not seeking to secondly um, it is very very recent and it's um, obviously a really raw 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 subject for the obviously the families the doctors that were involved probably the police that worked on it and then the public hearing it are hearing about it because we've all you know we all have kids in our family and our, our kids that are close to us and the the thought of it makes you feel quite numb mm -hmm. having done the research that i kind of had to do just to find out you know felt gaps my knowledge and answer my own questions was like you just feel a horrible feeling and I think even in an, an age when you're desensitised to this type of thing through exposure in the press mm -hmm. to these types of cases it just left me feeling I don't want to say shaken because it's been really dramatic but it, I felt really off kilter yeah. so having said all of that and acknowledged all of that not seeking to be clumsy not seeking to make light of the subject for entertainment purposes but the reason for me asking you to come and speak about this is there's been a lot of debate, a lot of deliberation, calls for her to be executed and call the, the type of thing you hear often is what kind of criminal defence lawyer could possibly defend that? They must be evil as well. Mm -hmm. And these are, think, I think these are relevant talking points and I think it's a healthy, positive thing to understand it. If you're in the outside of the legal profession looking in or you're outside the judicial system, as I am, and as I think the majority of people listening will be. So those are my reasons for wanting to get into it. And I just yeah. kind of want to, to acknowledge that because I know it can be a bit morbid. This isn't some true crime stuff. 
like, oh, let's get into the gory details. Yeah. It's the complexities of the, the legal framework that I'm really fascinated by. So just to get, to kind of have a bit of an overview, Lucy Letby, it was the longest murder trial in British legal history. Uh, but the jury, the jury deliberated for over 100 hours um, and they got into this horrific case. Could you, you're probably a better place than I am, to give us an overview of the case itself, or the you know the offences, the alleged mm-hmm. offences at that point, the arrest, and then how that case kind of played out. Yeah, um, I know you've sort of looked into to this um, a lot as well in terms of the the background, um, and I've sort of I guess focused on a lot of the the legal aspects of it. But my sort of understanding of of this um, is that. Obviously, she was employed as a a nurse, a neonatal nurse, um, working with really vulnerable babies um, between sort of twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen in this particular hospital. Um, she had worked elsewhere, and obviously, of course, during her nursing training, would have um, been exposed to to this area as well to neonatal and. Um, the hospital that she worked in, I understand, currently uh, only takes babies from 32 weeks gestation. Um, and just for anyone that, that doesn't know, um, we class term as from 37 weeks to 42 weeks um, of pregnancy, of gestation, as we, as we call it. So they sort of viability of you like of, of fetal viabilities from 24 weeks now some this is it with the opportunity for survival or progression to birth yeah right, so, okay. so some babies are born before that um and some babies are, are born um around that time or slightly after um and those are the sickest babies that you could possibly look after because they're not supposed to have been born yet and yeah. um, they're they're supposed to still be growing and maturing inside and there's you know their wee organs and everything like that um they have to really fight off just infection just from being out in the world because they don't have the protection of of being in you know the womb and the amniotic fluid where they're supposed to 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 be um but obviously in, in years there's been you know incredible medical uh advancement and I understand that Lucy Letby's um, unit that she worked in um, at that time um, did look after some quite sick babies. Um, And, you know, we do expect that in a neonatal unit, there'll be babies that that don't make it, but it's normally, you know, there's an awareness of that. it's, It's not necessarily something that is out the blue. And it's not unusual to hear, you know, buzzers going because the babies are desaturating, so their blood oxygen levels are dropping, and you're rushing around trying to do what you need to do to to sort that. Um, you know, those sorts of things aren't unusual, but they're they're ongoing, but they're you know temporary. That you'd expect like progress to be yeah. being made, um, and like that, you know, if you've got a baby that's got a really severe infection and, y- you know, you can tell by tests and things like that what what way things are going, it, it'd be very unusual, you know, for a baby to just outright 
collapse and I think that's the real issue in, in this case is the number and the frequency of these particular incidents and how you know staff were obviously alerted to that and had had their own red flags but seemed to be ignored that's the, one of the things that I, I, I might come to that sort of later on when we're talking about the the, the intervention that took place at the time um but so these the, the information that i have is basically the these babies are dying and at first it's all a case of oh isn't that tragic oh isn't that an awful coincidence mm -hmm. and then it starts to become more and more apparent something's going wrong so we had we saw some intervention didn't we from some doctors complaining to yeah. senior management who would have been I suppose separated from the situation on the ground so to speak yeah uh-huh so uh, it was a consultant um paediatrician so those um paediatricians would be the the sort of um doctors that circulate around the the neonatal unit and obviously consultants are um the most senior doctors um there on on the unit and uh, or i say paediatricians neonatologists as well as is their um correct subspecialty name um and they are you know in in overall charge if you like of of these babies that are on the unit and um overseeing their uh, junior doctors and you know giving direction to the nursing staff doing ward rounds and everything like that with the parents present um and you know developing the the care as it's needed as we, we go on day by day and i think that you know for a doctor to raise a concern like that, um, to me, I, you know, I've never heard of anything like that before. I, I've never heard of any of my colleagues being complained of by a consultant. So like it's, it's so out of the ordinary that you would surely then have alarm bells ringing. I First of all, with the, the nature and the pattern of the deaths or the, the near misses, yeah. because she was what convicted of killing seven, seven. but the attempted murders of six, six. others. Yeah. Should we have then seen severe or, or immediate and swift intervention and action from the senior management, or can you understand why they kind of held mm -hmm. off? Because I've got a wee bit of background yeah. on the communications between Lucy Letbian and managers. Mm -hmm. So I can, yes, and to, to an extent, I can see why you can't just go pointing the finger at someone and the reason for that is um when I was looking into this she wasn't just the nurse looking after the baby for the whole shift she might have been the nurse that was coming to do what we call a tea relief so you're there you're working 12 13 hours and you get maybe two half an hour breaks so on a neonatal unit in intensive care it tends to be one to one, um, and then you know your high dependency babies. You maybe have um one nurse to one nurse looking after two babies, and then in special care that's you know even less intense. Uh, you'd maybe have four babies, uh, that you'd be looking after per one nurse, and um, obviously when you're you're in a, a unit 
in a NICU where you're doing one-to-one, you can't go away for your break and leave that baby for half an hour or an hour. Another nurse has to to come in and relieve you. And and they then take over responsibility for that baby's care. Um, So you hand over what needs to be done. And then when you come back, they hand over what they've done and what you need to do um, thereafter. And it seemed to be that actually these babies were having collapses when she was taken over and doing a tea relief. Um, so in quite a short space of time, you know, we're talking like half an hour, an hour, yeah. that, that you would be looking after someone else's patient, someone else's Such baby. a specific common denominator, you're there for this short period of time. Yeah. There would have to be the coincidence of all coincidences mm-hmm. then for yeah. that to just be happening when she was doing that. Yeah, but I think the other way to look at it is, is that you know, she wasn't the only nurse looking after that baby on that yeah. shift and she she wouldn't have been the only nurse that had access to that baby um, because there have, you know, been cases worldwide where you have people that um, poison bags of fluid with various substances yeah. and, and all that. So you, as a manager, um, you know, all of that ha- would have to be ruled out the last thing I think on your mind would be that you have a a murderous yeah, a nurse. serial killer. Because that's, that's what it is. It's a serial killer. It sounds like a Hollywood term, doesn't it? But mm-hmm. that's exactly what she was. Yeah, because most people that go into the profession, and I say most, I've never met anybody that goes into the profession to cause harm to anyone. Um, and, you know, some people might, over time become a bit jaded and you know they're a bit cranky and they're maybe not as friendly as they used to be but that doesn't mean that they've got you know a bad heart or they're trying to do harm to anybody yeah and it's in direct contradiction to basic human instinct isn't it yeah we're hardwired to see a baby want to fawn over it and to protect it at all costs particularly when you then are in that profession um yeah the oh, well, I was going to go into the interactions between the uh, between one of the senior managers and Lucy Letby, with which I think she had a bit of an infatuation, which kind of muddies the waters a bit. We'll come to that. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, then t- to sort of condense that, the, the murders and the attempted murders have taken place. Alarm bells are ringing. You had um, basically you had a guy, Doctor John Gibbs, that's his name, hospital paediatrician. Mm-hmm. He was raising the alarm that babies were being harmed. And that all the signs pointed to Letby and that she was a constant common factor. He says that meetings were happening, but no decisive action was taken. And then the tipping point was reached after multiple deaths over the course of two days. And he then insisted, demanded upon Letby's removal from Mm -hmm. the neonatal unit. She was put into an office job. Um, Not trying to be dramatic here, but do you know what her position was? Yeah, I believe it was within the risk management. Yeah, patient team. safety. Yeah, <laughs> patient safety. Now that, like, we can kind of, you can laugh. We we're laughing, right? Yeah, and, and I, this, I'm and not laughing. As no, if I know it's you're not It's unbelievable. You're laughing in complete disbelief. That's exactly it. Would that? And I don't want to kind of jump from place to place, but would that? Because she was then put back into her fucking job, and yeah. it was eleven months later that mm-hmm. the police were called after some extensive yeah. investigations. Do you think? My my sort of understanding would be, Jesus fucking Christ, you are completely, um, you have got a huge amount of culpability to take as a hospital because you had opportunity to intervene. 
not only did you fucking not intervene, you placed her in a comically inappropriate role and then you put her back. Would, would you just think that would be grounds for prosecution to whoever was, was running the NHS? Do they have legal protections within the organisation? How does that work? So I'll be careful because this is now subject to a live police investigation um, in terms of the NHS's role and senior management. However, at this stage, um, it has been said in the news that um, the police don't intend to pursue any individuals, um, so that will be senior management, um, for offences. But that could change uh, in the course of their investigation. That That's what they've said um, publicly. And yeah, I can touch on the sort of legal aspects of, of that and, and what what can happen. So um, there's a, a piece of legislation, um, it's the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act 2007. And that was introduced to make it easier um, for the authorities to successfully prosecute large organisations um, where there have been corporate failings that have led to a death. Um, now, it's got a big long name because it applies across the whole of the UK, but in Scotland we don't have manslaughter. So that's why it's referred to as corporate homicide. Um, now, to date, there have been several uh, prosecutions under this act in England and Wales but none in Scotland um, and in terms of individual accountability I'll kind of touch on, on that um, in a minute in terms of you know what could be levelled at managers personally um, but for the, the offence under the 2007 act um, an organisation would be guilty of, of that if they conduct their activities, um, or should I say, sorry, if their activities are managed or organised in a way which causes a person's death or amounts to a gross breach of a relevant duty of care that is owed to a person. Yeah. The gross breach of relevant duty of care is, is what's jumping out at me. Yeah. And I, I've, I've seen sort of suggestions that, you know, it's we operate as an organisation and the organisation is the, the, the thing that absorbs the uh, the flack and the wrongdoing and we, we deal with it that way, but no one person can be responsible. But the way I kind of see it, and I'm not trying to overrule or say, oh, I know better than, than existing laws and, and jurisdictions and that type of thing, but if we apply the same logic, let's just say I manage a child's daycare centre and I the, grave things are happening to children and I'm being warned this person is a common factor and a common denominator and not only do I refuse to listen, refuse to act, I put them into another position but then I try to move them back because the senior management at the uh, the Countess of Chester Hospital neonatal unit, they keep trying to move Lucy Letby back into this position mm against all that advice and and I suppose evidence and, mm. and common sense and logic, I would then... Because the incident stopped when uh, she was off I, the ward. I, I would then expect to be told you have personally facilitated this happening, even though you knew, because it wasn't done in ignorance, you knew. And, uh, you know, I also saw the doctors, I saw one of the doctors on ITV and he was being paraded as a bit of a hero. 
and saying, no, I kept saying things, I kept saying things, I kept trying to flag it up, and senior management went, listening, and children kept dying. And I understand that he was in an invidious and quite an unenviable position, and the fact that your senior management are against you, you don't really have any proof. Mm. But at the same time, I'm like, at the risk of sounding crass and coarse here, I'm like, mate, fuck you, I don't care. Phone the police. Yeah. Phone the police, there was nothing stopping you. I, I can understand that point of view. I, I, I can, but the, the side in my experience that, that I have of working in the NHS, but also of the, the regulatory side of working with doctors and things like that, it's extremely difficult to be a whistleblower in the NHS. Mm. Um, it, you know, for a lot of people, it's pretty much, you know, it, it can be the start of the end of, of their career. And I'm, and I'm not saying that that's a reason that you shouldn't report something as um, horrific as this. I understand the logic, though. But people have, you know, reasons. They've got their families to support, things like that. And a lack of concrete evidence, I it's, suppose. Yeah, uh-huh. And, yeah, it... It can be really, really difficult. And uh, in addition to that, you know, in this case, being threatened by your management that, you know, if you don't stop this, we're going to report you for bullying and harassment. Which, to, yeah, to, that's to what they received, didn't they? What that means is that they would report the doctor to the General Medical Council. Fucking and hell. that's going to start a fitness to practice investigation. Yeah. And these things are really difficult for doctors to go through they are so hard on the doctor emotionally you can be suspended in the meantime you know you can um you can be given conditions that you have to work to it's not just you know you're away doing your job while you're waiting to find out what happens there are real consequences even just you know for an investigation of this type and it's been difficult for for doctors um that you know some of them have have felt that it's just too much for them um and it's it's taken them over the edge unfortunately and you know i think it is is easy to to sit and say why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that but having the knowledge that i have from both working in the NHS and the other side of, of, of how difficult it is when you're facing one of these investigations. I do have a bit of empathy for, for that, that doctor's position. Um, and, you know, it's hard when you feel like, as well, you're nobody's listening to you. Well, you know? Yeah, that was one thing I picked up on because one of the doctors saying that after he made the complaint, he was forced to write uh, send a written apology yes. to Lucy Letby. Um, and to acknowledge that it was coming under bullying and harassment uh-huh. and also you had to attend fucking mediation. Yeah. Which now, and I'm, I'm obviously aware that in, in hindsight we all have twenty twenty vision, but you're like, come on. And they, I have massive sympathy for the doctors in that one. They must have felt as if they were being completely gaslit. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we learned throughout the trial, I don't know if you'd seen much about this, about the uh, when, a doc, when a, something would happen to a child, she would then seek the comfort of this manager or yeah. doctor that she was infatuated with, and that kind of has been pointed to a potential um, uh, contributing factor as to mm-hmm. why she was doing it, because she was then able to lean on him for some sort of emotional support. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, 
I, I I didn't sit through the trial. I didn't I didn't hear all the evidence, but part of what I heard um was you know her emotional reaction um to I think that doctor being called as a witness to the case. If I'm um, correct me if I'm wrong, um and I think you know that um. I think that's something that a jury could certainly take an inference from. Yeah. Um, and I can understand why um, that that might bolster that um, as being a, a, significant. A, a significant reason. It's almost, it, you know, it, it boils down to it, it. It's a really horrific way of attention seeking. The most horrific yeah. form of attention seeking that somebody could ever the, um, do. Yeah. And they found when when she was arrested, and then she, um, they, they basically the police then have have license, or they have to have warrant to go in and you mm-hmm. know search her belongings and stuff. What they found, and shopping bags under her bed, were names and details of the babies that she'd killed mm. in official uh, paperwork, which probably is against the law to be removing that from the location. Would it not be? Yeah, yeah, it's a breach of data protection to take. I mean, stuff that's like the that. fucking least of our worries here, you know. But uh-huh. it's like, wow. But you know, I've done the job. It's very easy to take what your sheet home with you, yeah. which is your, you know, your. It's got all your patients' names, not you know the, your name, their second name, their hospital number, and what what they're there for. I can understand how you know it would be easy for someone to have like maybe one or two of them because they've not taken it out their their pocket or they've yeah. chucked it in their bag by accident. To it, have all it, of it's them. supposed to be in the confidential waste ripped up at the end of the shift. Wheel. But it's the same way that nurses go home with the keys in their pocket. You're you're tired and you know sometimes people forget having a couple of them in itself. I don't think that would be anything, but. All of them. Having all of them is a bit And then it goes further. Suspicious. On a phone, she had photos of handwritten cards that she'd sent to the parents of babies that she'd killed. Mm. Um, I didn't actually know that. In it's... her diary, they found in a diary. So on the dates that some of the babies were killed, mm-hmm. she had their initials written on the, the days that it happened. And then they found in the diary, they contained notes which said things such as, I am evil, I did this. Mm-hmm. Do you see that? Can that be used as an admission of guilt? Is that inadmissible in court? Is that kind of either way? Does it give weight to the prosecution's argument? So, it's certainly something that again a jury could could take a an inference um, from. I think in this case, when I first heard about it, and I think it wasn't really that well publicised initially, it didn't really become that public. I think until near the end, because yeah. this case was going on for ages uh, as you say the, the longest um, running case so you know before everything had had come out and and when I just sort of heard about it initially I thought there are some people out there who like your you know Brendan Dassey for example and yeah, uh-huh, making a murderer who, people who you know they're told they're, they're told and by people by police officers um, you know, you've done this, you've done this, and and they give what? Well, certainly in his case, what I believe is a false confession and an absolutely horrendous, horrendous interviewing technique. Yeah. Um, and so there are people out there who 
you know, if they're told something so many times that they, they start believing it. And, you know, it could be, you know, somebody's having a bit of a crisis mentally and they start start doing this. In this case, do I think that? No. I think that there's 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 too much. Now, having heard what I heard yeah. since, obviously, I didn't have all, as much of the, the information and it wasn't always as publicised. Um, what I will say, though, about one of the things that, that the police noted about her diary was, I think it may have been in relation to initials, it was things like she'd had like LD and things in her, um, her diary. That stands for long day. That's like a 12-hour shift. There were things that, like, as a nurse or a midwife or a doctor, like, you would understand that that's got a different meaning. Right, okay. Um, so there were a couple of things where I was I, I had seen, I think it was on Reddit or something, and I was like, mm, no, that, that doesn't mean what they think it means necessarily. What What were the main pillars of a defence as, as you know them? Because I understand them to be, and I think I probably am mistaken here, that she, her defence was, this is all a coincidence and I'm wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Was that what it was? Yeah. That's fucking flimsy. So, I get when you stack it up against the evidence that exists against her. So I think, the you know, to delve into it a wee bit deeper, that is, I guess, the, the overview of it. But I understand that, you know, her defence team were looking into you know, failures in terms of... Um, staffing and essentially taking it back to the, the system of you know the, the organization so systemic failures were then causing these coincidences and she was the common denominator and therefore it's it's all been attributed to her but it's nothing to do with her that's my understanding of the crux of of her um of her defense and obviously you know, the jury weren't able to convict her on all of the charges. Um, the, their will, or the, the Crown intend, in, in England, the CPS intend to retry her on only one of those. Um, so it may be that they weren't all attributable to her, but the jury certainly found her guilty of several m- murders of, of babies and... You know, it, it may be that, she, that there's a few that, you know, weren't hard and, and could be coincidences, yes. but it's it's pretty that, uh, you know, once you've committed a, a crime like murder on a, a baby in a neonatal unit, it's very hard to, um, def- you know, defend. Any others. Uh, exactly. Well, can, as you kind of rightly pointed to, on a ward like that, when lives of, of these wee babies are kind of are at risk, there is the likelihood that something will happen, that something yeah. will go wrong, but mm-hmm. it's kind of, and you know, it very well could be, like, I wasn't working that day, okay, well, it doesn't mean that you didn't fucking do it any other time, because mm-hmm. all the evidence points to you. Let's talk about the public reaction, because how how much do you think public reaction, and because obviously this was one that caused, like, reverberations of shock, mm-hmm. horror, disgust, anger, rage, revulsion, mm-hmm. disbelief, every imaginable emotion. Do does do you do you think public reaction does have an outcome? Uh, sorry, an influence on the outcome? Yes. When it comes to jury you do. No. In terms of the jury, um you know, we all hear about trial by media and everything yeah. like that these days. I kind of answered that before you finished your question in terms of does it have influence with like 
the crown, the government and everything, I think, yes, it, it does. In terms of the jury, um, as I say, this one, I don't think was that well publicised um, initially. No, it was not. Um, but as they sort of got to the end of things, um, that, you know, did a complete 180. Um, but... I suppose the jury were in that for such a long time they were really immersed in it and and heard so many months and months of of evidence um you know I think to to say does public opinion sway the jury would kind of be undermining yeah. the jury's role so I wouldn't say that necessarily but you know if you've got a case where it's sort of tried in the media before. Before it goes. Yes, but I think that's a bit of a different story. Because you mentioned, you know, they can it affect the crown and the prosecution and stuff. And I would point to, and I would just like to say, I'm in no way comparing these people with Lucy Letby, but just as an example of that being a possibility, the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, public pressure in order to secure a conviction because of the horror that it's caused and the shock. And it made me wonder if, if they maybe did, or if, if you think that could make them double down. I don't think in this instance it was required, but just wondering in general, would mm. they think, fuck, like we need to have somebody convicted, otherwise I've not done my job if I'm the Crown Prosecutor? Well, I mean, I think the fact that there's going to be a retrial on one of the charges, mm. I th you know, I, I would certainly say that public opinion um, may be a, a, a big factor in, yeah. in that. Um, just uh, remind me of where I'm going with this. So well, the go the question I was again. asking is how much public reaction and their, therefore public opinion can influence the outcome from the jury's mm. perspective and also the approach taken by the, the Crown? Yeah, um, you know, obviously a, a prosecutor's acting in, in the public interest and, you know, I have a, a really strong feeling that a prosecutor shouldn't take personal pride in the way that a case goes because do you think they do? I'm sure there are um Very you diplomatic. Know, people that want to, to, to you know have um certainly in America absolutely yeah, make a name for <laughs> themselves absolutely and you know here it's maybe not um quite as cutthroat as that but of course there will be people who want to be seen to to do a good job and you know, maybe the built up a relationship with with families and they don't want to feel like like they've, they've let them down and and things like that and that's not to say that they're uh, gunning for anyone just just on on that basis but it, i just sort of make the distinction of i think when you work for the public interest it shouldn't be you know a, a personal victory necessarily yeah. you know you, you, the way that it might be if you are in, in the defence and you know, your your yeah. clients are acquitted. I think it's I think it's a little bit different, just in the sense that you know the the, the point of of bringing that case is is justice um, in the the wider sphere of the public, and it's not you know you're there as for example in Scotland you're you're not given your name if, if you're a fiscal or, or an advocate, you're the advocate deputy or you're the fiscal deputy, whereas I'm referred to as my name in court, it's, that's because you're there in that specific role, uh, you know, 
Yeah, okay. it's a it's a wee bit. It's a it's a it's not a, to say they don't get their names mentioned, <laughs> but you know it, it's mean, that it's, that's your role. Um, it's not about personal victory and exactly, personal glory. Exactly. But the thing that I struggle sometimes, and it's like a bit of a minefield in terms of my own understanding and comprehension, is the way in which because I want to go on and talk about defence lawyers as well because it's very relevant to public opinion and public reaction, but the way in which they are just a conduit for what they're told this is what i'm telling you this is what you need to go and say Mm. and i sometimes think but what if you know the opposite to be true let's just say if you're the prosecution and it's like you're hell-bent and going okay so this is who it's like a boxing match and saying Mm -hmm. and by the way I'm, i'm saying i'm stating these opinions for you to prove me wrong or to educate me or enlighten me but I think these are misconceptions, possibly, and they, this is how I see it coming from an uneducated perspective. So, I see it as a boxing match, right? And the the pro the chief prosecutor, whatever you call them, they don't know who they're fighting. They're just told, "This is a guy you're up against, and you need to go and secure a victory." And to me, that's a bit like, "Oh, but is that not slightly counterintuitive to to I don't know." <laughs> I don't want to say common sense, but mm. you know what I mean? If somebody comes mm-hmm. in and you go, it doesn't matter what he's done, or if you know it to be true or not, you just, you go and try and win. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I see what you're getting at. I would, what I would say in my experience is that the Crown, you know, obviously I've only worked in Scotland, so I'm talking about Scotland here, um, and you know, what I've heard from, from other defence agents is that, you know, you hear it in the agent's room things. There are cases that, you know, the Crown will just take a view of, oh, just run it. Yeah. Just run it and see. See what happens. Does that not a bit fucked? That's fucked to me in, in my head. I'm like, what? That could then have as someday it shouldn't have been convicted. But the the thing is, is they have to have a prima facie case to bring it in the first place. Right, so, uh, so they, obviously so they... The Crown Office look at it and go, yeah, there's definitely grounds for prosecution here. Are, are, are there something there? Yeah. Um, and obviously... Is it not notoriously difficult to get that? From my experience, watching 24 hours in police custody, that's the extent <laughs> of my um, uh, knowledge. I look at it and I'm like, fuck it, mate. That, I'll look at something and go, this is open and shut, he's fucking guilty of sin. And the Crown Office or whoever it is will go, nah, you've not got enough here, you can't is charge that, so. Is that, like, that's based in England, England doesn't it? Different. See, it's, it's a bit different. Being arrested in Scotland isn't the the same level of, like, the investigation as being arrested in England, and that is, like, actually a really important point for the regulatory cases. That I want to ask are. you about um, criminal defence lawyers. It's the age-old trope. A criminal defence lawyer, you must be evil. Um, how could you possibly defend somebody like that? You should just say no if you think they might be guilty. All of these things, fill me in. Right, how, so how you see that? Basically, these are not things I'm saying, by the way, yeah. for anybody who's been deliberately um, obtuse. So, what it boils down to is that we are all entitled to a defence, and is that not a, one of the UN human a part of the UN Human Rights Charter, the right to a fair trial? We are all entitled to a fair trial and we're all entitled to a defence. Now, the question about, you know, how can you defend someone if you think they're guilty? Well, the the key question there is, have they told you that they're guilty? Or is that just your own personal view? Because your own personal view, you know, that's your kind of 
you shouldn't be bringing that into to your professional decision making. If someone has told you that they are guilty, that they've committed the crime, ethically and you know through the, the, the law society you are, and as an officer of the court, which all solicitors are, prevented and you, know, you just would not do it, you would not stand up in court and present a defence for a client who has categorically told you or I went out and you know stabbed this guy in the neck. What um, if they hint at it? Yeah, and the reason I say that isn't, and by the way, see if this gets back to him, which I feel it might, you never know, because people might be listening out of interest and go, here, mate, you got mentioned on this. But the one I always think of is Brian McConaughey QC, who was commended for the way, oh, what was the judge's name again? Remember we were talking about him? For the Alicia McPhail murder case with Aaron Campbell. Was it Lord Matthews? I think it was Lord Matthews and he commended both sides of the bar for the way they conducted mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. ensuring that justice was met. But there were just notes that I had seen a reporting throughout the case um, and it was basically said that you know, this Aaron Campbell guy had talked about how he had to stop himself from laughing and how he had kind of made comments maybe to social workers mm-hmm. and how he had essentially, I mean, all but admitted what he had done. Yeah. And that was when I was like, really found it so difficult to get my head around. Mm-hmm. I thought, surely that gets back to Brian McConaughey. And then I wondered, did he maybe think, I'm going to present I'm not. I'm not accusing him of any impropriety or anything like that. But I wonder, did he think, okay, if this is a defence he wants me to put, I'm going to put it because this is going to ensure that justice is met. And he's had his fair trial. I've said what he wanted me to say, and it's very obviously fucking bullshit. Mm. So the the first part that you were talking about there, um, normally, and a, a person that's been convicted would um, have reports done so like a criminal justice social work report and and that's that's to inform sentencing um and that's to to give um the judge the sentencing judge a background and and it can often be used um in mitigation and uh, i just from what you've said there wonder if that's perhaps what you're referring to because I'm not sure at what stage these things these things were, were said. Oh, so maybe Brian McConaughey, Casey, you know. So the trial would have been finished. Yeah, he, would he, have he wouldn't convicted. have known about those comments. He wouldn't have known until right. he was presented with the report, which wouldn't have been that long before the sentencing diet. Right, okay, okay, that makes sense. I wasn't aware of that sort of chronology. And then the the. I, I do recall that um, Aaron Campbell tried to blame someone else. So to do that, you would have to, to lodge a special defence of incrimination. Um, so obviously, as a lawyer, you act on your client's instructions. In order to do that, your client couldn't have told you that they committed the crime and the, and you then can't go and put a special defence of incrimination forward when you know that to, to be false. Now, obviously, I think in that case, it was pretty clear that everybody they knew. knew. It was a lot of... That's it. And they knew that he'd done it. They, they knew that he was guilty, which was... And by the way, I'm, again, uh, stressing that I'm absolutely no accusation of impropriety in any way. 
from Brian McConaughey because from my understanding is a very reputable and highly respected um, Casey but I just was like as I was watching it because I, I followed it closely and I was thinking to myself I was like you know I was like you know, you know we all know and it just made me wonder if he's obviously never going to say that and somebody might actually shoot me down and say I can't believe you're even suggesting that but I just wondered if he thought okay I'm going, if that's what you want me to say that's what I'm going to say because you've had your trial and then mm. justice will be served I think that that case for all involved um, you know um, I've worked with some of the advocates that, that were involved in it and I, you know I, there, there's been obviously programmes and things on it Um very traumatic for oh God, all sides to sit through uh, because I think that's what people forget is, is you know the defence lawyers have to go through all of these horrible photographs and pieces of evidence as well um, and you know that can leave a mark on people you yeah. can you know you do have to be a, a certain kind of character I think to, to be a defence lawyer or defence um, advocate but that you know, I think that that case in particular, I, I just can't imagine um, how difficult it, it must have been. And I think that the the judge um, was, you know, really right to make the the comments to to commend you know parties, both the crown and defence, how how they handled things, um, because what that was was an acknowledgement of, you know, essentially saying. You, we know that you have to act on your client's instructions and, and you know, you did your job to the best of, of your ability, but also, you know, tried to do it in the most respectful way possible. And uh, again, an acknowledgement of the absolute horror that that must have been for yeah. everyone to sit through and, uh, you know, having to go through these horrible documents late at night and oh, and everything yeah. like that you know it's a really it's, hard it's, thing to do I suppose the irony is I suppose you can make the argument that the most important cog in the machine of law and justice would be the criminal defence lawyer Absolutely. because without them there is no conviction yeah. and then that it sounds like an oxymoron doesn't and, it and, and no that is a real crisis that we are potentially facing in Scotland just now is that there may not be any legal aid criminal defence lawyers um, Why? In, in a short amount of time. Or is this for people going on to more lucrative positions and jobs? So the you know I am not a legal aid lawyer and I want to make that clear so I don't want to speak you know for the, the legal aid guys but I do you know speak to a lot of them and follow them on on Twitter and things like that and keep up up to date with um the the struggle and that is that legal aid rates haven't changed um since 1999 I believe and those rates were based on 1992 figures so whilst you know people have this image of lawyers like they're all rich and everything like that i mean i drive a 64 plate toyota i go i'm not a victoria beckham i'm <laughs> not gonna <laughs> rolls royce to scale see, um, see on that by the way and i'm wondering if um you listening if you think the same see when you said 1999 uh -huh. I, I, I went was it that long ago i know it's <laughs> that was only 10 years ago that was <laughs> fucking ages ago shit 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 <laughs> what was that 24 years ago 
1999. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was yeah, 24 yeah. years ago. Yeah, because that's the year I started high At school. Almost 25. Almost a quarter of a century yeah, ago. I was, I was 11 in 1999. 1999 was almost a quarter of a century ago. Does that not make you feel physically ill? Mm-hmm. I miss the 90s. Yeah, I do a wee bit as well. Did you watch the David Beckham thing, by the way, speaking of Victoria? I haven't yet. It revisits a lot of the 90s pop culture. And I'm an absolute insufferable nightmare to watch it because I'm going, I remember that, I remember that. Are you ready, mate? (laughs) Shut up and just watch it. It's good. Yeah, just very quickly touching on the the issue about um, defence lawyers in Scotland. So the reality is the most vulnerable people in society those that, that can't um, afford to, to pay for a lawyer. And actually, even nowadays with the, the cost of living crisis going into like middle classes, not being able to afford a, a, a lawyer, that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, you know, the, you'll not be able to get a legal aid lawyer if something isn't done. Um, so what's going to happen? What, what, what does happen? So someone is accused of something. The you know the trial cannot commence unless they have representation. They don't have legal aid and they can't afford a lawyer. Is that like got to be some fucking absolute golden loophole? Oh well, they just let me off because I can't go to trial. Obviously, that's not going to happen. So, what would be the outcome? So, the thing is, is in sexual cases you can't not have a lawyer because you, if you're accused of a sexual crime, you can't cross-examine the complainer. You're not allowed oh. to. No, I didn't think of that. Um, so it's absolutely, absolutely essential. And the 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 case that um that you that you know the what's the word I'm looking for example that you've given there. As I say, I'm not a legal aid lawyer, so it's not something that I've come across. But I would imagine that the court's going to intervene in that situation, right, okay. and something will be done. There are. Um, lawyers who are, uh, you know, run and paid for by um, the legal aid board in Scotland. Right. Um, so there, there are sort of they're almost kind of like your public defender type. Yeah. Um, so that is available. Um, but as I say, I don't work in legal aid, but I very much have you know a lot of um, respect for those guys and really would champion. The, their conditions and and rates and everything being improved because I think it's absolutely necessary for for our society and it's a huge issue which is not getting enough. Well, and uh, definitely an interesting subject. Maybe maybe a criminal defence lawyer would like to come yeah, and have a chat with me. Yeah, I think you could a hundred percent do um, a, a whole other podcast on that. And there are you know great people out there that can talk about that and and the sort of trauma. Um, informed aspects which is is something that's been really pushed within the profession as well well here's an open invitation to anybody that thinks it would like to come and talk to me about that because i'm particularly fascinated by it and i think it's something that's worth shining shining a light on um to come back to the case you know as we kind of get to the the verdict at this point now she's found guilty my my main question she received a whole life order which means she'll never be released she'll die in prison I think there's only been a handful. Do you know off the top of your head? This isn't me trying to do trivia, just out of curiosity, <laughs> but do you know who the others? Myra Hindley or something, maybe? So your whole life orders have been given to... Surely Ian Huntley. Ian Brady. 
Ian Brady, the, the Moors murderer, murderer, born in Glasgow, was he not, for the mm-hmm. 1950s and 60s? But his, co- his cohort, his accomplice, was Myra Hindley. And she also received one. one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, more recently, um, 67. Wayne, Wayne Cousins. Cousins. Yeah. They say the Everard killer, former Metropolitan Police Officer. That's another one where you would have to, I mean, we don't have the time to get into that, but when that sort of examined forensically, like, Jesus, who else is. It, could be held responsible in, in a sense. Uh, right here, I've got them here. Yeah, Ian Brady, Myra Hindley, Dennis Nielsen. He had the document, the, the drama about him recently, mm-hmm. played by, was it David Tennant? Uh, Rose West. Okay, that makes sense. Rose and Peter Sutcliffe. Mm-hmm. Kind of names that you would you would kind of expect. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's a hell of a lot more in, in recent years as well. Mm-hmm. Peter Sutcliffe got it in 2010, so I'm assuming... That, that was given to him because I said that he was given that in 2010 so I'm wondering if maybe something else Levi Belfield the killer of Millie Dowler mm-hmm. um, I'm not being um, morbid here by reading these names out but I'm just trying to give an example of these are the severities or, or the people that are kind of also in that there's, yeah. a, there's loads more that I haven't heard mm-hmm. of and with the, the and not the just murder actually alright what else um there's a guy called Michael Roberts um, who was convicted in 2012 of numerous um, offences, including rape. Um, but his was actually appealed. His whole life order was successfully appealed to life with a 25-year minimum uh, punishment part, as we call it in Scotland. Um, and that, I believe, was... His case was part of a joint appeal by several other prisoners who were challenging these um, these whole life orders. Um, I think with that, you know, ministers, your government ministers, um, they still sort of retain the power to release a prisoner during right, their okay. sentence so um, on compassionate grounds. Yeah, there should be. I, I don't see any compassionate grounds in, in which this would be. Do you know, the reason for my surprise, right, at the amount of names here and how many of them have been very recent that have been sentenced to whole life orders is because of the the sort of reverberation that that caused, you know, and people saying, well, a whole life order, like, this is huge. And mm-hmm. it is huge, obviously. But I would have thought that it would have been far, far more um, few and far between that these were kind of handed out, obviously. Yeah, so I think sort of numbers-wise, um, since the 80s there've maybe been about a hundred or so of them um but obviously they've not all been maintained on appeal um you know example that that i gave there what i again will point out is that these are kind of an english thing um so in scotland um in a sense you could have a whole life order if you are of a certain age and you're given a certain lengthy sentence where you're, you're going to die in prison. Uh-huh. But we don't necessarily have it in the same way that England have yeah. it. It's not it's not like it's not, you know, exact um in the way that, that their justice system have it. And obviously there are offences that they have that we don't have here and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, obviously this Lucy Letby case is English so to, f- to focus it on that um, it, it didn't surprise me one bit 
that, that that's what the sentence was. Were you happy that's what she got? Is that a silly question? I think there was no alternative, to mm. be honest. You cannot, you cannot be getting released after that. If you're chalking it up the way I see it as well. I mean, I to me, killing somebody if it, in circumstances such as that, it's it should be life. It should be life for life. But let's just say you get 25 years for doing it once. Okay, so you do it six times. It's a whole life order. And I don't think mm. they should run sort of concurrently. I, that always annoys me. I think, why even, fu- what an insult. Why even bother giving the sentence then? Are you getting sentenced to eight 25-year sentences and they'll all run at the same mm. time? What? So, you, so you're not then? Yeah. So you're actually only getting a few years per you know, per person. Mm-hmm. And that that is the way they, they do it in America is it's, you know, individual. It's yeah. not all run and added in together. It, it, a lot of the time in America, it's, you know, you'll get 25 years for this, 25 years for that, 15 yeah, for she, this, and it's all adds up. So then you're looking at like, yeah. Have you ever seen the videos? I'm actually double, um, I'm sort of, thinking should i mention this because it might sound bad but have you ever seen the videos of like courtroom freakouts it's called when somebody's sentenced to 800 years uh-huh. and sometimes i've watched them and i felt physically ill mm-hmm. because you know you're like you're so immersed in the courtroom situation as it unfolds the sort of boringness of mm-hmm. 15 minutes of nothing chat and things you don't yeah. understand and then all of a sudden he goes sentence you to 900 mm. years in prison and then it hits yeah. you and you go oh fuck i'm in a room mm-hmm. for the next till i die yeah. and what i always think of of that when i see those um you know as a, a woman and when it's, it's women that get these kind of things and if they're over a certain age you know my age or right thereabouts i just think you know you'll never if you've not you'll never have your, you know if you've got children you'll never see your children again properly yeah. or or if you don't have help you'll never have children yeah. you you know you you're you'll never you'll live your life and but then people would say well they took someone else's child but just that's what I think when I see these things I think you have done you that obviously that those are the consequences but you when I watch them I find them quite hard to watch yeah, because I find it difficult. It, it almost is watching a death sentence. Yeah, that no, yeah. I always think that I'm like you're you're condemned. And I I don't agree with the death penalty. Me neither. I think for the into that too much. Yeah, no. I I, I, I kind of thought about touching upon it. My re- I, that's a whole one hour discussion in yeah, itself. Absolutely. My reasoning, I suspect yours will be the same as when I hear about something like that, and if it happened to to somebody that I knew. In, in any which way, I would be, I know I would have a, an animalistic reaction mm-hmm. and I would be fucking baying for blood. But the when you're looking at these things, you have to take a step back and go, in order for the continuation and preservation of society, we have to, no, that can't happen. Yeah. And that's why you'd be like, yeah, I understand your anger. Mm-hmm. We have to take that decision yeah. out of your hands. Otherwise, we descend into the chaos the and madness. The risk of putting one innocent person to death for me is just yeah. unacceptable. I think as well, it's like you can look at it, both things can be true. Does mm-hmm. this person deserve to lose their life because of what they've done? Probably, yes. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we should then do it? No. Yeah, An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. blind. Yes. I, I I totally agree. Um, As the kind of now the aftermath um, has settled, you would have thought that's it that's that over 
and uh, no, now she has the right to appeal. And is that correct in saying that she is going to be appealing her sentence? So, is there any point? Is it like trying to put a f- house fire out with a bucket of water? So I, th- um, I haven't seen. So yes, you're right. She has what we call salt leave to appeal. So what that means is, um, you know, you've got 28 days in which after a conviction you can seek leave to appeal. Um, and the court, obviously, again, this is England, so the court of appeal it will be in England, they will decide um, whether permission has been granted for the appeal to go ahead to a hearing or whether it's refused. And if it's refused, um, the accused person can then, or the convicted person, can then ask for a second look, um, a review of that decision, and that would be two or three judges who would then review that renewed application. Um, What can happen, though, is... um, in appeals um and that's that's here and down in england is that you can actually now this probably isn't really going to make a a difference in terms of her sentencing but you can actually receive a longer sentence if you appeal oh so it's you know it can be risky is that a punishment for trying to act away though or is it because they go yeah no you're right we got it wrong you deserve more so in, in england um if you're um permissions refused and and you know you seek this review that there can be a, a cost order and the way that that's given um if you lose it is longer in custody so in a way it, it sort of is a punishment because um, they can't you know you're you're in prison you can't pay them <laughs> the cost so the way that they get you for that in england right, is, yeah. is to add on time to your sentence wow. now if you've got a whole life order and that's not it's, it's you know, you've, what have you got to lose nothing the, um, yeah and she's not to not to completely immerse mm. myself in but I think she, she might be correct me if I'm wrong is she appealing her convictions as well because I think she'll be so you can co- appeal your conviction know, your sentence or both um, I suspect she would be appealing both possibly convictions she'll maintain her innocence and I believe her mum or dad and her best friend are completely pleading her innocence as well, which mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, yeah, I think they have got a degree of culpability for their refusal to accept the verdict, but also you think their heads are probably fried and they just do not want to mm-hmm. believe it. So I'm not going to I'm not going to hold a gun to their head too much on it, mm. even though I'm, I'm I wouldn't say I was in support of them. I think it seems it appears to me to be a pretty open and shut case where absolute overwhelming evidence um and it's pretty horrendous now mm-hmm. i wonder do you think i'm not asking you to to give a pure detailed answer here but do you think there may be and we kind of touched on it some consequences for the the management that failed to act or will they be sort of shielded by the nhs as a whole so i think there is um I think there is the possibility um, that, you know, if something's uncovered in the investigation into the trust, um, particular individuals could face um, 
prosecution or, or at least an investigation um, into that and that's sort of where the difference it comes in between Scotland and England is there's an offence down there called gross negligence manslaughter um, and yeah that that is it's a possibility what, then if they uncover what the, the police have said at this stage is they're not looking into that mm. so you know I'll not, not go into in, in too much detail, but... It's like they're not actively seeking it, but they're not saying they won't find it. That That's it. Of course, if they come across, you know, it's, it is clear-cut, um, they can level those charges at individuals. They can level the corporate charge um, at the trust, uh, or, or they could do both. Um, now, the consequences of... The, the trust um, being convicted, um, if, if they were to go on to be convicted of corporate um, manslaughter or corporate homicide under the, the 2007 Act, it's a financial penalty. And that sort of gets your head spinning, you know, well, how does that, we're taking money off the NHS, how does that benefit? What, what actually... Essentially, you're Are taking money. From, you're, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Well, you're taking money out of your own wallet to put it in your own bag, aren't you? So there's, yeah, complex. So I think that the public might not be appeased by that in itself. Yeah. Um, but I think that will very much depend on how that's publicised. Um, this this may be viewed as a really severe and harsh comment, but I would say the people that repeatedly refused to act, and instead not only did they fail to act, but they did the complete opposite of what they should have done, you have blood on your hands. And for that, I'm afraid there has to be a consequence. I'm not saying I want our lives to be destroyed, but we cannot have the deaths of six babies, attempted murder of seven more under your watch. You could have done something you didn't, I'm afraid there's going to be ramifications for that that's kind of where I stand yeah it's um you know people have been suspended and things like that um that that have been involved in this um at at this stage um it really will have to I think be looked at in depth and, and come out can this be attributed to one person or, yeah. or, or, or other individuals or you know as I said before the Crown have to, to have or, or the CPS in England they have to have a, a prima facie case so what does that mean? Ha- so it basically it's on the face of it there's enough there's enough evidence okay, okay so it's like um, see all you lawyers are always talking in Latin <laughs> just to, so we don't know what you're saying there, there there has to be some you know there has to be something something there and it, it it has to be, you know, it's got to be reasonable. It can't just be something that you've plucked out of thin air. Um, but looking at this in this way, I think what they will really have to drill down into is, you know, is there enough of a failing by X person or, or Y person or, or the two of them? Or actually, when you look at it, has there been maybe five or six different people involved and they've all done something and that's then sort of led to this decision or whose shoulders does it rest on? Can it, you know, can it be attributed in, the, in that way? Um, and that is, um, 
probably the the difficult part it's a lot easier i think to get um a, a conviction i suppose on, on a, an organization than it than it is to um go after the individuals certainly if you're doing that in isolation and you're not going after the organization um you know unless the individual is like a one-man band and a a company you know, it's, that that would be quite difficult because the the way that the the offence is all goes into you know senior management and all that. Yeah, perfect. Well, you've you've answered a lot of questions. You've educated me. I'm hoping you've educated, enlightened, or entertained people listening. Entertained, probably not the right word. Engaged. Yeah. Because it's not well, very, it's not something quite relevant in terms of entertainment. Very energetically draining subject isn't it but thanks very much for yeah i for engaging. Uh, it's it's been it's been great for anybody that's uh i'll plug my article for anybody that's interested in a wee bit more on the um the act and um the individual accountability i've written an article and i'll be happy to give you a link to it if you want to read it well the link will be in the episode notes that's the beauty of it you send me the link to that then I'll get it in those episode notes thanks very much for coming I really appreciate it and thank you for listening as always and we'll be back with another episode of Bleathered soon cheers